and thank you for musicians for playing skillfully and loudly this morning as the scripture said so we could praise the Lord with you uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis in chapter 37 last week I started a, a series on uh, Joseph and I preached a series on Joseph about eight years ago and uh, I've decided to come back and touch on this great story. I remind you that, uh, that one-fourth of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph. So God put great importance on this. I mean, only a few chapters talk about creation. And then you've got Noah and the flood. And then you've got the table of the nations and... and all of these big topics in Genesis and the topic that God gives the most chapters to is Joseph. Now that's not a mistake. God wants us to learn from Joseph. And so uh, we come to the second part in the early years. We could call it the pits. And uh, we will see Joseph uh, in that pit in just a moment. Well, with that said, you remember what's happened so far is um, Joseph, of course, had the dreams. His brothers envied him. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they hated him. They couldn't speak one word peaceably to him. And... Uh, and now we come to verse 12. Look at verse 12. And his brethren went to feed the father's flock in Shechem. Remember, that's his ten brothers. And Joseph is number 11 in the lineup. And Benjamin is even younger. He's number 12. So the ten older brothers uh, went to Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, Israel, call him by either name. And Israel said unto Joseph... Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. We see again a part of Joseph's integrity, his obedience to his father. He didn't, he didn't say, Well, they hate me. They'll be mean to me if I go out there. And they can't say one kind word to me. He said, Go, and he said, Here I am. Whatever you say. That's a phrase that means, I'm here at your command. Whatever you say, that's what I will do. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the sweet time of singing. Bless thy word now to our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. True story. Chippy was a happy parakeet. He loved to sing. He sang in his peaceful cage. Until one day his owner decided to clean the cage with a vacuum cleaner. She took the attachment off, opened the cage, and was trying to be very careful not to, not to hurt Chippy. But she was sucking the stuff out of the bottom. And then the phone rang. She reached to get the phone with this hand and kindly tilted the vacuum cleaner with this hand. And soop, you know, he's gone. Chippy in the vacuum cleaner. She sees what she's done. She, she, uh, 
hangs up the phone, she turns off the vacuum cleaner, she opens up the bag, and sure enough, there's Chippy. He's still alive. He's stunned, but he's alive. But he's covered now with dirt and dust and in between his wings and so forth, so she tries to wipe him off and can't get it off. And So being the loving pet owner she was, she ran into the bathroom and turned the sink on and and held Chippy under the sink and the faucet and washed him off and was getting him clean and then she realized he was shivering all over and so again being a compassionate bird owner she reached for the hairdryer true story and so she takes the hairdryer and she dries Chippy Chippy never knew what hit him. <laughs> After a few days, the man who wrote the original article about this, the reporter, he called back after a few days to check on Chippy. And he was talking to the owner. And he asked how the bird was doing, how he was recovering. And, and she said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. She says, and I quote, he just sits and stares. <laughs> Dr. David Jeremiah said about this story, he said, it's not hard to understand why Chippy lost his song. He was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. And then Dr. Jeremiah says this, and I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit. He says, can you relate to Chippy? Most of us can. One minute you're seated in familiar, familiar territory with a song on your lips. Then a pink slip comes. A rejection letter arrives. The doctor calls. The divorce papers are delivered. The check bounces. A policeman knocks at your door. You're sucked into a black cavern of doubts and dosed with cold water of reality and stung with the hot air of empty promises. The life that had been so calm is now so stormy. You're hell-stormed by demands, assaulted by doubts, pummeled by questions. And somewhere in the trauma, you lose your joy. Somewhere in the storm, you lose your song. End of quote. It's happened to all of us, hasn't it? In varying degrees. Well, we're going to see that this happens to this young man, 17 years old, Joseph, uh, in our text today. I, uh, if you. We started with verse 12. It tells about him beginning that journey. And I'm not going to read the whole rest of this chapter. We'll read bits and pieces here and there. Look at your map. And uh, we'll see on this simple map the places that are mentioned here. They start out in Hebron right here. And uh, remember we just read he's sending Joseph to a place called Shechem. Shechem is right here. It's 50 miles away. 
So that would be a possible two-day journey if you're really hustling it, but normally 20 miles a day was a day's journey. So it, it could well have been a two-and-a-half-day journey uh, for uh, Joseph. And when Joseph gets there, he can't find his brothers. And he seems to get a little bit disoriented or lost himself. And he comes across a man in a field. And the man says, who are you looking for? And he told him. And the man knew who his brothers were. And he overheard them saying they were going to a place called Dothan. And Dothan is right here. And Dothan's about 20 miles. So again, about another one day's journey for Joseph. When he gets there, of course... Uh, his, while we're looking at the map, by the way, let me show you the trip now down to Egypt. From Dothan to Egypt, if we'd follow that line, would be about 250, 300 miles, many days' journey. So he goes to Dothan. Pick up the story in verse uh, 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. Don't let that word slay throw you off. <clears throat> it means they were going to kill him. They were going to murder him, his brothers. Before he even got there, they're, they're conspiring. They're working this up. If you remember, we talked a little bit about those ten older brothers. They were mean and violent men. And uh, verse 19 says, And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer, behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Wow, their jealousy, their envy had turned to jealousy, and their jealousy had turned to rage, and... Hatred. You have to be careful with envy. It'll escalate into things that will make you regret what you've done, maybe for the rest of your life. And so, uh, they conspire. Verse 21 says, and, Re and, and Reuben heard it. Reuben's the oldest of the twelve. And uh, he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that, uh, that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him. That, uh, he, but his purpose then, we're told here, was that he might uh, deliver him out uh, to his father again. So Reuben basically says, let's don't kill him. Let's throw him in the pit and let him die there. Well, they were agreeable to that. And just let the, you know, let the desert kill him. Let the wilderness kill him. But Reuben had an ulterior motive. And that was he thought he would slip around later and pull him out of there and actually take him back to his father, Israel. And, uh, and so they throw him in the pit. And uh, let's pick it up in verse 24. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Probably a cistern. Probably it was a, a place that held water when the rains were heavy. And, uh, but at this point it was dry and there was no water in the pit. And uh, 
And then we pick it, pick it up. Where did I leave off? 25. And they, they threw him in the pit, and then they sat down to eat bread. Now think about how callous these men are. They're going to eat their lunch. They're going to eat their bread sitting around this pit. And we know from chapter uh, 42 that when they remember back, they remember how he cried out to them and asked them for help. And he cried out in anguish. So here they were eating their lunch, and, and he's down there saying, Please don't do this. I'm your brother. And he's pleading for his life. While they're eating their bread, look at verse 25. They lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead, and their camels bearing spices and bombs and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? I mean, we're, we're not going to make any money out of just killing him. Uh, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. As though that matters now. I mean, he's saying, now he's saying, yeah, let's don't kill him. He's our brother, even though that's what they all intended to do. And uh, he said, let not our hand be upon him. He's our brother in our flesh. And his brothers consented. And then the word Midianite is used. There's no, nothing confusing about, uh, no confusion about that. The Ishmaelites and the Midianites came from two different uh, branches of people, but they merged together and they pretty much lived together so that the words became synonyms at, uh, at that day. So they pulled him out of the pit, we're told, and in verse 28 it says, for 20 pieces of silver they sold him and... Uh, and when Reuben came back to the pit, he was gone. Reuben had apparently slipped away to work on the sheep or do something that needed to be done. By the way, I didn't mention this before, but you wonder why the, why the men went on to Dothan. The sheep, uh, according to Jacob, were in Shechem. Maybe they took the sheep up there with them. Uh, but you wonder why. If you speculate a little bit, you remember Joseph came back. The first time he went out with his brothers, he came back with a report of the evil stuff they did. So they might have had some evil dealings going on up in Dothan. And that's the reason they'd travel the additional 20 miles. We don't know that for sure. I'm only speculating. And uh, so now they've sold him, and he's carried into Egypt. Reuben comes back, he's gone. They take his coat that they had ripped off of him when he first walked up. They took that coat of many colors that his father had made for him, and they dipped it in blood of a, of a goat. And then they sent that coat back to his, their father, they didn't actually take it back themselves and take it into his presence. They sent it with a servant, apparently. And with the message, we found this coat in the wilderness. Is this your son's coat? And sure enough, Jacob knew it immediately. And he began to weep. His heart was broken. He said, some wild animal has surely ripped my son to pieces. 
Can you imagine how heartbroken that father was? Jacob. And then one more verse, verse 35. And all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. Now the word daughters is plural there. And I told you last week that there's only one daughter, Dinah, that's recorded. Her, her birth is recorded for us in the scripture uh, of Jacob. Some people think maybe there were others because the word daughter is plural about three times in the story. But uh, the, these daughters plural could have been daughter-in-laws. Uh, but at any rate, either daughters by, uh, da- uh, by marriage or daughters by birth, his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. He said, look, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his, his father wept for him. In other words, he said, I'm never going to get over this. I'm going to go to my grave still mourning for my son. Look at the height of hypocrisy. Look how that verse starts again, verse 35. And all his sons and daughters were there to comfort him. His sons who had done this despicable deed. They're there acting like they care about their father's feelings. They're acting like they think what happened to Joseph is a terrible thing. They're hypocrites. The list of sins for these ten brothers just continues to grow. And we see the contrast between Joseph's character and the character of those ten Brothers. So Joseph was thrown in the pit, sold into Egypt. The Psalms will tell us that he had chains around his neck and on his feet when they took him in to Egypt during this journey, which would have taken 15, 20 days, or maybe more, depending on how fast the caravan could travel with uh, all of the camels weighted down with merchandise and so forth. So I want us to think together about some things this morning. I want us to think about being in the pits ourselves. Pits. I use the word plural, pits, because there's many different kinds of pits. Some of them are deeper than others, and, and, uh, and you know, some of them keep you longer and so forth. So I want to th- think about the pits. And I want to define it like this. We can be in a pit in the circumstance of life. In other words, it can be because of things that have happened to us. Terrible things like happened to Joseph. Or we can be in a pit in our mind. Maybe everything's going okay, but you're just depressed and, and cast down and you're, you, you're in a pit because of your depression. Either mind or heart or, or soul. So let's think of about this in a little more detail. There's the pits of sin that we fall into in life. The pits of sin. These are of our own making. These are problems we bring on ourselves, maybe on our families because of our our sin. And certainly, these brothers... Not only had they thrown 
Joseph in a pit, but in a sense they had thrown their own selves into a pit because 22 years later they still feel guilty and they still feel like God's punishing them for what they did 22 years earlier. So their own, your own sins can form this pit. Sins of immorality, unfaithfulness in a marriage, or sins of intimacy, sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Alcohol. All the homes, the marriages, alcohol has destroyed. Drugs, anger, selfishness, envy. That's one thing, of course, the brothers had, envy. And that envy turned to malice. Malice is ill will. They couldn't even think one good thought about their brother. And then hate. So how do we get out of these different pits that we put our own selves in. Here's some quick thoughts. Confession and repentance. That's where it should start. Confessing our sin. If you're a believer, of course, the promise is if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. I'm glad that little word's in there. A-L-L. All unrighteousness. You and I have claimed that verse many times. 1 John 1, 9, hadn't we? And it's still there. Thank the Lord. The word confess in the Greek has the idea of repentance with it. It literally means to agree with God. So you're agreeing with God about the thing you did, that it was wrong and that it was a sin. And what else would God want about that? He would want you to get it out of your life. And so repentance is implied even in the word confession. Conf confession and repentance. Apology. You may need to apologize to somebody you've hurt, somebody you've wronged. You can do it in person. You can do it in a letter or you can do it in a text. You may have to apologize. Restoration. That means if you stole $50 from somebody... You need to pay them back that $50 or whatever else, whatever you've hurt because of your own sin and behavior, you, you need to make restoration. And then, of course, restored fellowship, a genuine confession, and the Lord cleanses us, and we can have fellowship again with the Lord, and then learn to praise Him. I'm going to talk more about that in a few moments. But in all of these situations, one of the keys of getting out of, of a pit is praise. Praising Him, even while you're in the pit. So He'll lift you out of the pit. So learn to praise Him. Whatever stimulates your praise, use that. If it's listening to the radio, to a certain kind of Christian music that you like best, listen to that. Praise Him. Praise Him in the morning when you get up and in the evening when you lay down and praise Him through the day. Praise Him. Learn to keep His praise on your lips. So there's the pits of, of sin. And then there's the pits of providence. That is those things that are beyond our control, beyond our decisions. For instance, sickness. 
loss of a loved one, loss of a job, poverty, a wayward child. These are great pits that we as believers fall into. And they can be devastating. All of us suffer. All of us go through hard times. There are times when all of us are in some kind of pit. It's how we respond that makes the difference. So how can we get out of this pit? How can we respond in this pit? Know that God is good. Believe that. Tell yourself that. Know it. That God is good. He's good all the time, isn't he? Even when the circumstances seem to say different. He's good all the time. And then know that his ways are past finding out. You may not ever have the answer to why this happened, why that happened, why you were hurt so badly. You may never know till you get to heaven. Because his ways are past finding out. If I could understand everything about God... God would be no greater than my ability to understand. He's a lot greater than my ability to understand things. His ways are past finding out. And then claim Romans 8.28. You know, we've said this whole story of Joseph is an illustration of, of Romans 8.28. Claim that. For we know that all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose. Amen? It's true. It was true 2,000 years ago when it was written. It's true now. And then trust Him for comfort and strength in the midst of that pit that you can do nothing about. And trust Him for all your needs and then praise Him. Praise Him in the pits. The Bible says a lot about praise 333 times the Bible calls you and me to praise him 153 times in the book of Psalms it calls on us to praise him that's not counting other words like rejoice in the Lord or give thanks unto the Lord or worship the Lord that's just the word praise we're called to praise him 300 and 13 times in the scripture. Now, I can't read all of those to you, but let me read just a couple of them, a few of them to you. Listen to this one, Psalm 9. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. Psalm 27. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer... In his tabernacle, sacrifices of joy, I will sing. Yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. This one says, when your enemies have surrounded you, lift your head up and sing praises unto the Lord. It's amazing what happens when you praise the Lord on a regular basis. Or if you haven't done it recently, it's amazing what happens when you start to praise the Lord again. And then... Bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. All the time. Praise the Lord all the time, even when you're in a pit. Praise Him. And, uh, and let His praise continually be in your mouth. And then 308 other times. Praise Him. It's a beautiful thing to see people praise the Lord in the pit. You remember two people who praised the Lord in the tent in Acts chapter 6, in a pit in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they were beaten and flogged and, and they were bleeding all over and they were put in stocks and in the innermost part of the prison. And at midnight, instead of grumbling and complaining and whining about why they, God let that happen to them, they began to pray and sing praises unto the Lord. And all the rest of the prisoners in jail heard them. You know, if you, if you really praise the Lord in the pit, other people who are in the pits that may be around you, they'll be blessed by you. And they, God was so pleased with what they did that he shook the jail and, and let them out. You know the story. Sometimes he'll lift us, change the circumstance and lift us out of the pit of circumstance. But sometimes he doesn't change the circumstance, he just changes us and lifts us out of the pit. Two of the people that I witnessed myself who praised God in the pit in a beautiful way was Daryl and Denya Haymore. Denya's sitting right over here to my right. Eight years ago, her husband, Daryl, passed away. Two years prior to that, he was diagnosed with ALS. ALS is a terrible disease. In Daryl's case, it started with his lower legs and just kind of worked itself up over those two years, paralyzing him from his feet up until finally his lungs were paralyzed and he couldn't breathe without a breathing machine. And uh, his vocal cords were being paralyzed. At the end, he could barely speak. He was a... He was a big man, a strong man, an athlete, played high school football, got a scholarship in football, went to college and played college football until he had an injury. Then he was in the Navy, came out of the Navy and uh, became a pharmacist, went to school to become a pharmacist, was a successful man, big and strong and robust. He loved the Lord, he loved his wife, he loved life, he, loved, he enjoyed life. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, comes this terrible disease that first keeps him from walking, then he can't walk with a walker, then he has to be in a wheelchair, and then he has to... And his Denya had to take care of him 24-7. But I watched them those two years. And they praised God from the pit. Daryl knew when he was going to die because he chose to be taken off the life support. That was his choice. And uh, the day before he died, Karen and I went over to the home to visit. 
as always, he had a question for me. Something he'd been thinking about, you know. Something from the Bible, some kind of theological thing or doctrinal thing. And, and I, I, I don't remember, I wish I could remember what the question was, but he had this one question. I could barely understand him, and then you had to kind of interpret sometimes. She could understand him very well, and I could understand him pretty well. So from under his mask, he asked me the question, and I tried to answer it as best I could. I said, is that, does that make sense? Is that good? And he nodded, yeah. And then he said he knew he was going to die the very next day. It was scheduled. He said, I'm ready to get on the bus. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready to get on the bus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And the whole time praising the Lord, his, one of his catchphrases was, To God be the glory. You'll hear Denya saying that every now and then. She and Daryl together would say, To God be the glory. And the next day, he opened his eyes in heaven and saw his Lord. A couple of texts that Denya sent to us during this time, this worst time in her life. And I wrote them down. And she gave me permission to share them. This is eight years ago. She said, we had some tears today, just with all the challenges. But so thankful those tears only lasted for a little bit. And God refilled us with his peace and grace. She said, I praise God that he is with Daryl and I both through every circumstance, those we are experiencing together and those we endure individually. Here's another one. The greatest privilege is to praise God when we don't understand. Wow. A privilege, the greatest privilege is to praise God when we don't understand. That is, as the psalmist said, praise Him all the time. And let His praise be in your mouth continually. She says, because He is our refuge and our strength, He is worthy. Even with all these challenges, I have confidence that the Lord is working all things out for good. One more. She said, but we know God is in control. And he is pouring out his love and grace to us. He is working this out for our good. As Pastor Paul said the other day, he is always on the throne. My heart's desire is for God to be glorified in our suffering. I wrote above and below this a title, Praise from the Pit. God calls us to that. i tell you what I'm going to do. I've got another section I'm going to share with you, but I'll share with you, with, you, with you another day. My time has slipped away. Bow with me, please. Maybe you're in a pit of some sort. Maybe it's circumstance. Maybe your own sin brought it about. Or maybe somebody else mistreating you like Joseph's case. But you're in a 
difficult place, a dark place. And you'd say, preacher, pray for me. I'm in a pit of some sort. Would you slip your hand up all over the building if that's true of you? Yes, God bless you and you and you and God bless you and God bless you. Yes, God bless you. You may put your hands down. Many hands. God bless you. Trust Him. Draw close to Him. Let Him be Lord of your life. Surrender to His Lordship. And then praise Him. You might say, Preacher, you don't know how bad it is. No, I don't. But God does. And He's the one that told us to praise Him at all times. And continually. Praise Him. You'll be surprised if you praise Him how that praise will help lift you out of the pit. Father, You've seen the hands of your people. You know our hearts. You know as Joseph did, so we do today. We find ourselves in the pits of life. Strengthen us today. You've seen those hands. I pray they would begin to praise you. They will yield to your lordship. And that you will crown them with, with victory and joy and peace and give them their song back. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please. The word